It's uh, it's summer. It's the it's the sweat season. Maybe you're season of sweat. The kind of person who's naturally uh, perspiring, even when you don't exert yourself. You're a sweaty person. You're a horrible beast. Well, maybe you don't want to gross other people out by being a sweaty person. Barry here has a tip, and, and Barry, let's start here. So you, you're an actor, right? Yeah, I am an actor, writer with the Second City and Improv Olympic uh, theaters in Chicago. Okay, and in the course of your acting career, uh, you got a you got a tip to so that you don't show your sweat. Can you can you tell us about it? Yeah, for people of a certain disposition um, or people who just tend to sweat a lot or if you're going to do a show in a really hot environment, there's this great tip I learned from a wardrobe stylist. And what it is is you take your shirt and you turn it inside out and then you take two uh, feminine sanitary napkins and you sort of use the adhesive there to hold them to the armpits of the shirt so that the perspiration never shows so you stay looking as fresh as a daisy even though underneath it's just a roiling inferno of heat and sweat so so if i understand correctly you're taking uh two maxi pads and fastening them to the underarm part of your shirt absolutely yes you are attaching the maxi pad with its adhesive to the armpit of your very nice dress shirt uh, or, or you could probably work on any shirt. I've yet to use it with a T-shirt, but only exclusively with dress shirts, and it works like a champ. But it does seem but. to me that this would be a handy technique if, say, you're going on a first date or you have a job interview, a place where you don't want to lift your arms up and have, have that going on. I think anytime you want to appear as cool as a cucumber or completely and totally fresh, yeah, I would recommend this. For summer months, Absolutely. Job interviews, first dates, if you're meeting your girlfriend's parents for the first time and you want to seem like you are a put-together person, <laughs> this sounds like an excellent way to go about doing that. And do you know, is this, is this something, is this like a costume designer's secret? It is. So uh, if, I'm, uh, if I'm watching pretty much any movie where it's a yeah. warm scene, I can mm-hmm. assume that whatever actor I'm looking at on stage has or on the screen has maxi pads in his underarms probably i think that's a pretty solid bet and even if they're going for the whole gritty realism thing i'd imagine that the sweat you're seeing is probably fake yeah it's probably been spritzed but i bet underneath those maxi pads are well in place and secured well i gotta say this uh has improved my summer experience and i think it, it has improved my movie watching experience so thank thank you so much Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, give you a little bit of slang for next time you're in China. And we have probably our most highly advanced toilet of the week. But first, uh, if you saw snakes on a plane in a theater, which you almost certainly did, uh, you probably remember this scene. Enough is enough! I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking... Now, if you saw snakes on a plane on TV... Or or on a plane, which would be a terrible place to see snakes on a plane. Here's that same scene again. Enough is enough! I have had it with these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane! Everybody strap in! 
So we, we're curious how this process works, taking a, a film that is not safe for everyone and making it safe for everyone. Dave Terman works out in Hollywood. His job is to recut these movies and make them safe for audiences of all ages. He gets notes from the airlines or the networks that these movies are going to show up on, uh, telling him what needs to go, and then he, he gets to work. So, Dave, uh, those clips from Snakes on a Plane, how does something like that work? Sometimes these alternative lines are written by me. Uh-huh. Other times it's something that when you have the actor in to record the alternate lines, they'll come up with something or we'll come up with something on the fly or the engineer will say, hey, try this, and uh, we'll throw it out there. Sometimes it's the director who wants to approve every, every, uh, every line. You know, and every director approaches this sort of thing differently. There are some directors that want it to stand out. Uh, they want the edits to look like they're quite obviously edited and edited for television. They don't want any illusion that this is their original version. Oh, interesting. Some guys, some directors want a per- perfectly seamless edit, and they want every alternate line to make absolute perfect sense uh, so that the audience isn't uh, taken out of the movie. Well, Dave, let me let me ask you about another example. Here is a clip from uh, The Big Lebowski, and we'll, again, we'll bleep this. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens? This is what happens when you f- a stranger in the ass, Larry. This is what happens, Larry. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens when you f- a stranger in the ass? This is what happens. So, uh, in case it wasn't clear there, uh, what uh, we bleeped out was the F word and the A word. And F. So, here's how they replace those words this in the what TV happens, version. Larry. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? This is what happens. You see what happens, Larry? This is what happens when you feed a scrambled eggs. The edited line is, this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, that sounds like that was something that was done uh, tongue-in-cheek, where they obviously wanted this to just seem edited and they wanted it to be silly. Both of the examples that that we've just talked about, uh, mm-hmm. there there seems to be an attempt to, uh, if it's dubbed over audio, to make it match the shape of the mouth of the actor. Uh, is that something that you think about when you're coming up with these lines? Absolutely. When I do these edits, you know, I put uh, great effort into trying to uh, make something as seamless as possible. You know, I just did an edit of a uh, uh, a movie for another studio. Uh, called End of Watch, that I don't know if you saw that with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, and uh, every other word in in that movie is, you know, or mother and uh, it was really a big challenge to get that thing correct, but if you watch that movie on television, it uh, it's pretty seamless. What did you, what did you sub in for all the F's and MF's? Well, a lot of it was trimmed, I trimmed around lines and stole lines. Sometimes I'll create words from other parts of uh, the scene that never even made it into the movie. Let's say the word, the word that I, I have to cover is, is douchebag. And maybe I'll go through and listen to the dailies and I'll find something where the guy says, first, I want to go here and then I want to go there. I might take the IR from that line and make it dirtbag instead of douchebag. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, and then it's generally seamless because it came from the same scene and it has the same background sound and it's the same actor. And if he has the same tone in his voice, I can usually uh, 
squeeze that in. Well, that's that's it raises an interesting point that often you can tell that it's not the same actor. Like the, they didn't, the studio right. wasn't able to get that person. What do you do uh-huh. then? Well, it, uh, I audition people. I do the very best I can to try to get an actor that sounds as close as possible. And then what I'll do is I will whittle down. I won't put the entire line in there. I'll put as little of the word as possible so that the edit is, is, is as little noticed as, as I possibly can. Have you ever done it yourself? I have. Really? What have you done? I've done um, several different people. I'm not sure if I would be able to say. Could you tell us what word you said? Well, there was one line where uh, the guy says, Manny's a dick, and I said, Manny's a dork. <laughs> um, there was, uh, which, you know, oddly enough, dork is really just a, another word for that I've learned. I, I remember when I was in uh, junior high, there was this girl, and she, whenever, you know, another person would say the S word, she would always say, oh, sugar. And uh-huh. I think she probably had a replacement for every bad word. <laughs> I, I figure you must be pretty good at that. Like, you know, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, what do, do appropriate things come out? <laughs> no. You know, only when I'm around my uh, 12-year-old son. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I grew up in New Jersey where uh, foul language was... Uh, fairly commonplace. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I've, I've, I'm, I'm much better at censoring myself when I'm around my son. Well, Dave, thank you so much for telling us about what you do. No, you bet. Thank you for uh, calling. It was nice talking to you guys. Maybe you're heading to Shenzhen, China. Uh, probably not, but if you are, you uh, here's a little bit of slang that'll help you out. This comes from the very dense urban villages there. Nikolai Urosov wrote about this in Harper's Magazine this month. So, Nikolai, can you, can you tell us this term? The term is handshake buildings, which arose because, I mean, the, the history of these villages is really strange. I mean... Um, there were dozens of these small ancient villages in a part of China in Shenzhen that was developed as the first special economic zone, right? So there was huge urban development. And, um, and the villagers lost all of the land that they farmed, and they were left with the communal villages where they lived. And so it was basically they grew out of a need to survive. They started to rent out space in the villages to migrant workers and eventually uh, tore down their houses um, and built two- and three-story structures, then five-story structures, then, four, you know, 12, 13, 14-story structures. Right. But they were always built on the same footprint of the original village house. So what happened is you had these dense, tiny little villages with little houses next to each other that grew into these towers for migrant workers, packed with migrant workers. And so they, they practically rub up against each other. And they're called handshake buildings, because basically you could reach out uh, your window on the top floor and shake the hand mm-hmm. of the person in the building next door. Of your neighbor across the street, right? <laughs> do people actually ever do that? Do you know? I doubt it. You know, most of these apartments are um, have four, five, six people living in them. They're small apartments, very packed. When When you're living in a place that's dense like that, like I imagine that privacy is really at a premium. Have you have you found any uh, surprising ways in which people kind of, you know, build up walls to keep 
keep their own privacy? I think it's less the way they build up walls, which isn't really surprising, but they have so little privacy because also so many of the migrants have to share bedrooms with other people. That what happens is a lot of their kind of lives take place outdoors. So you see things like plazas where people are, you know, doing just like in other parts of China, Tai Chi in the morning or eating breakfast outside or playing ping pong in, you know, of kind of a, a driveway or whatever, or a small parking lot and things like that. So you, I think what happens is a lot of what we would consider as kind of the interior life of a family actually takes place outside on the street. When they were villages, were a few thousand people living there. And now you've got 14 or 15 million people living on the same area of land. Um, it's pretty remarkable. They're just all on top of each other now. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nikolai, thank you so much for talking with us today. Sure, I was happy to. Thank you. We have been getting all kinds of ideas for new ice cream flavors. A couple we got are uh, dill pickle chunks in vanilla called uh, Pregnant Paws. That's, that's from Dave. Belly button lint mint. From Phil. It's an example of one we won't make. Andy recommends Garrett's popcorn, which is a Chicago thing. Maybe your city has a special kind of popcorn. In Chicago, it's Garrett's popcorn. Yeah, you mix cheese popcorn and uh, caramel popcorn together, which sounds like good ice cream. Or caramel popcorn. Of course, uh, a lot of people are asking for Malort ice cream. Or Malert ice cream. And we'll, we're going to make that. We're going to try that. Uh, so we will be making uh, one or more of these ice creams in just a couple days. So you have a couple more days to get us uh, your wonderful or terrible recipes. Send them to howto at npr.org. Got an email from Kylie. Kylie uh, says she listens to our show as she counts and weighs bees in her lab at UW-Madison. Kylie, these next 15 seconds are for you. Sting with the lyrics. I have a mind to listen to this song later. We are still collecting your toilets of the week. You can get them to howto at npr.org. Uh, this week's nomination comes from Wes. It's a toilet in Belfast. And on the line with us now is Tim Walker. He's in charge of waste management in Belfast. Now, uh, Tim, for somebody that hasn't experienced uh, this this toilet, it's kind of out in a pedestrian walkway area. Uh, t- tell us what it looks like. It looks like a large manhole cover during the daytime. But okay. at 10 o'clock at night, this, this steel-bodied vision rises <laughs> from the ground to about uh, almost a meter and a half, two meters tall. Wow. And it's got three portals, one on either sort of side almost, uh, which is a urinal. And between the hours of 10 o'clock in the evening and 6 o'clock in the morning, it allows uh, guys to, to use this facility uh, as opposed to using more unconventional methods after they've come out of clubs and, and pubs and the like. So, so, Tim, this is a urinal that exists underground until nighttime when it, emer- right. it, mer- it emerges fully formed from the sidewalk. That's right. Is there, is there at any point any danger that someone could be standing on the manhole cover uh, and then the urinal would emerge? <laughs> no, because it's, it's triggered by, a, by an officer. Okay. 
and it comes up at 10 o'clock in the evening and it goes down again at 6 in the morning. Similarly, nobody could get trapped in one either. I keep thinking about the fountains, I think at the Bellagio in in Vegas, where people just gather around and wait for them to to rise from the pond. (laughs) Do you get spectators, you know, around 10 p.m. to watch the, the urinals rise? Only a certain kind of spectator. Yep. Uh, yes, we, we've had a few people who've kind of been standing around to look, to look at these, these toilets rising or this toilet rising, um, but they tend to have a more professional interest in the nature of toilets and toileting. Okay. Um, otherwise, it, it kind of it comes up quite quickly. Okay. And as a result, you know, if you turn around, it's, it's there. And uh, likewise, it, it uh, disappears as, as quickly. Have you noticed, is there a, a decrease in uh, men using uh, maybe more unconventional uh, toilets in the area then, now that we have these? Trees and fire hydrants, such. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. In fact, this, this location was very much chosen because it was uh, sort of the, the, the top of what we call the Golden Mile here in Belfast, <laughs> uh, which was a whole series of, to- a whole series of restaurants and, uh, and uh, eateries and other sort of nighttime venues. And obviously, after people had, had a good time, uh, the the various doorways and, and stuff in the area used to suffer badly. Mm. It, it's interesting. It's kind of like the you know theory of a lightning rod, where you you just you find a place for all the lightning to go so that it doesn't hit the things you don't want it to hit. It's like a pea rod. <laughs> Good analogy. Well, Tim, uh, congratulations! You have our toilet of the week. <laughs> hey, does that does that come as a plaque? We can put it up somewhere. <laughs> yep. Uh, we, we should probably look into a play. Yeah, it only comes out at night. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? I, I learned if I ever need to uh, call somebody a mother I can just call him a monkey fighter. You mutual funder. What if you're really mad at a guy who fights monkeys, though? Because you would be like, you monkey fighting monkey fighter, which isn't. Of course I am. That's what I do. I'm it's a monkey, redundant. F- monkey fighter. Yeah. I learned that, that studios are willing to sacrifice any type of context just to match the lip flap. It doesn't matter if you, you know, meet a stranger in the Alps. Yeah. I, well, when you think about it, though, I, swears don't have a lot of context to begin with. Like, why, it, why when somebody is uh, not telling the truth, what does that have to do with bullshit? I wonder if that bothers bulls that the you know, something that they have to do every day has this, you know, kind of negative connotation in the human world. There's a lot of shame associated with going to the bathroom, probably. I can't help it. I'm a regular bull. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Doesn't mean I'm lying. Not a person at all. I'm a bull. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Hega with technical direction from Lorna White. Our interns this week are Turbo, Turbs McGurbs, and Gary Webb. Those are all the same person. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. Can I, can I ask you, we, uh, you know, here in the U.S., we say urinal, and you pronounce yeah. it urinal? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> urinal, urinal. <laughs>